On March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am so good because we're coming back to another wonderful episode of Empty Frames where we talk about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, all of the characters who were involved with that, and some theories and some possible suspects. And we got a good one here for you today, Mr. Dennis House. We really do, Lance. Uh, Dennis House spoke with Robert Gentile at his uh, house, at his house in Connecticut. And this is a great conversation because D- Dennis House is a news anchor at an ABC affiliate in Connecticut. And you can check out his website at dennishouse.tv. And Lance, I-, I feel like we just got along with Dennis House really, really well and had a great conversation. Well, he is an incredibly cool individual. Super professional. One of the most highly regarded journalists in, uh, I mean, Connecticut, yes, but probably New England as well. Uh, He's got an incredible track record. And his interview with Mr. Gentile was so good uh, because it spanned an, an entire spectrum of emotions that were surprising to me. I really thought that he might give the impression that he was this intimidating mob boss when in reality... Dennis and him had this really great conversation, a really human conversation that even touched on a little uh, like on an emotional level. Yeah, it's a really cool conversation and it was a great interview. Definitely check out the interview. There's a link in the show notes or you can just Google Dennis House, Robert Gentile and you will find it. And Lance, some sad news we've got to bring to our listeners uh actually the very last episode that we did on empty frames that we released here was an interview with an art detective named charlie hill uh and that interview was recorded in november of 2020 charlie hill actually passed away in february of 2021 i think tim that that interview will probably go down as one of my favorites because how warm and accommodating mr hill was in this interview uh, surprising to me that he didn't have any element of uh, intimidation or any sort of uh, arrogance about him, not like he should, but this is a renowned art detective. This is somebody who was a Scotland Yard detective, uh, someone who has been involved in numerous recoveries of art and was the subject of the Billion Dollar Art Hunt, which was the documentary by the BBC. Uh, someone who, again, has experienced so much and he was just so gracious to give us 
to a limit, to a point, what we were asking. And um, and he held back some details that he wasn't able to share just due to the investigation. But probably, again, one of the more informative and enjoyable conversations I feel you know, personally privileged to have had on uh, Empty Frames. And he will be missed. Absolutely, Lance. And we've done this for, you know, going on six years. And I don't think we've ever uh, interviewed someone who's passed away after. And uh, it was so soon after we interviewed him. And we did have a great connection. And uh, so it was it was a bit, uh, it's a bit sad. It's a bit sad. And uh, I do think he left some breadcrumbs, as you said. He, he held back a bit. Um, he was trying to set the record straight, it seems, about the Boston Mafia, which actually uh, Robert Gentile kind of, you know, comes into, you know. So make of it all what you will. Um, this interview with uh, Dennis House is interesting. You'll want to watch uh, the interview with Gentile and Mr. House as well. Form your own opinion on whether Mr. Gentile uh, is being completely open or not. And Tim, this marks uh, us coming near the end of season three of Empty Frames. So we don't know where it's going to go after this. We might do some episodes as we get information, but season three of Empty Frames is making the turn for home here. It really is. This is episode 10, Lance. I think we have two more contractually. And uh, don't think we didn't see this is a robbery on Netflix. So uh, we may be bringing some coverage of that documentary to these airwaves uh, before the uh, the very uh, last dance here, Lance. Sounds good. Well, I will be looking forward to covering that documentary. It was a fantastic documentary yeah. about the art heist. And for those of you out there who have information about the 13 works of art that were stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum... Again, we only have two episodes left of this season three. Reach out to us and let's break it here. Welcome to the podcast. Dennis House, how are you today? Nice to see you, Lance and Tim. Great to be here. Uh, really a pleasure to uh, to have you on. You're you're like a legit reporter. You're a legit journalist. Um, that always makes me a little nervous, but I'll, I'll get over it. Uh, fill us in, uh, fill the audience in uh, on your background a little bit, where you come from and where you work, and then we'll get into some gardener art. So I grew up in Norwood, Massachusetts. Nice. And then I was an intern at uh, WPRI in Providence, and then I worked for television stations in Rockford, Illinois, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and now in Hartford, Connecticut, and New Haven, Connecticut. We are the ABC station for all of Connecticut, and I've been in this market for almost 29 years this summer, and I've been covering a host of stories, a lot of politics. I do a Sunday show called This Week in Connecticut with Dennis House. And I also anchor the evening news. And I used to be the host of a show called Face the State on another station. And so I've been around for a while. So your uh, your work in uh, reporting on politics must be pretty slow lately. Well, this is sort of an off year locally <laughs> because we don't really have any big elections. But I know you're joking. But obviously, with what happened with Trump and Biden, that was a, that kept us extremely busy. We've got municipal races here, some mayoral races this year. Next year, we have a big governor's race. In fact, that's kind of getting started here in Connecticut, we have a big U.S. Senate race as well. Oh, very good. And they're talking about legalizing marijuana, uh, allowing Tesla to sell cars here, and a few other items as well. 
Well, Tesla can't sell cars in Hartford. So the deal is that Connecticut has a dealer law, which means if you want to sell cars in the state, you must have a dealership, a place to go. And that's not the Tesla model. And so Tesla has been arguing for several years unsuccessfully. This year, they feel like they might be able to get through to some lawmakers, but they want to just be able to sell like they sell uh, to the rest of the you know, country. I don't know if any other states have this dealership law, but I, but I do think some do. And as you know, there's one this dealership, I believe, in Framingham, Massachusetts or Natick, Massachusetts at the mall. So the state wants some sort of presence by Tesla here and the other dealers are fighting it. And they're also saying, why are they getting special treatment if they get to sell online? Because Ford now has an all electric car. General Motors has all electric cars and Toyota and so BMW. So the argument is we don't really need Tesla. That's the argument against them. Uh, and if they want to be part of the game, sure, open a shop. And what could possibly be the argument against medical marijuana? Well, this is recreational marijuana. <laughs> oh, okay. Medical marijuana has been legal in Connecticut for a couple of years. And so now there's talk as to whether we should join Massachusetts and some other states. There are 11 in the country right now that, le- that have legal marijuana. And that way you'd be able to, well, it's, it's controversial in the sense that one of the proposed bills will not allow you to grow it at home. You'll have to buy it from a store or a dispensary. So they kind of want to control. There are some marijuana factories that grow it right now for medical purposes. And this would be they would be expanded to sell to the general public. Well, maybe the next time we speak, when the gardener art is recovered, you'll be able to spark up your joint in your Tesla and drive (laughs) around in the state of Connecticut. Doing the news. They're living wild in Connecticut these days. It could be a very wild future. It's a very wild future for Marijuana Connecticut. Marijuana and Tesla, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dennis, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us. You recently had an interview uh, that aired on on your news affiliate, and uh, it was pretty, pretty intense, and it was with Robert Gentile, uh, who has long been known in Gardner Heist circles as a sort of a a candidate to have had the art at one point. Yes. So what happened is we've obviously covered the Gentile story for the last 10 or so years when they first went to his house, the FBI, and we learned about this guy. Uh, The Gardner Art Heist has been covered by everybody. But the Connecticut connection was that all of a sudden the FBI was digging at this guy's house and he was arrested on drug and some weapons charges. And they dug up the yard, they went in the house, but they found nothing. And so I had put in a request uh, a few years ago to put in a, to have an interview with Robert Gentile and it was denied and declined. And so I got a call in February to say, Hey, um, Robert Gentile would like to meet you. And so I went and I met him and we agreed that um, he would do an interview. So we set up the interview within the next couple of days and I went and interviewed him at his home. And uh, people have asked, well, why did he pick you? He picked me because I've been on the air for a long time and like to believe I'm highly regarded. That's what people tell me. And I was his wife's favorite news anchor and she passed away a short time ago and he was, uh, he's still devastated by that loss. Yeah, you can tell when he, um, I think it was in the third segment when he's speaking about her death, he actually says that it was the scrutiny of the Gardner heist that he believes put her into the state where she had her stroke and died. Absolutely. And that's what uh, he doesn't necessarily blame anyone for, but he blames the whole situation 
for her death. He got out of prison and she stood by him uh, while he was away. And then he came home and she got sick and she had a stroke one day and he went in there and um, he found her dead. And he said, it's really been life-changing for him. He lives in the same house that they purchased years ago when they were young parents, I believe. It's in suburban Hartford, about 10 miles from downtown Hartford in Manchester, small house. And uh, it's uh, hasn't changed that much over the years, he said. They converted a garage to a Florida room once. That was about it. And lots of pictures of her around. They met, uh, they both grew up in Hartford. He grew up in a neighborhood that is no longer there. It was uh, raised for some downtown development. And they went to Hartford Public High School together. He dropped out and then they ran into each other after and they ended up getting married. And do you know what changed um, for Mr. Gentile? I, I know he was in prison at one point recently, but what made him decide to uh, speak publicly about this now? I, I think he gets the sense that the end is near. The end is near. I mean, he did say, he goes, I've got nothing. Um, I'm going to die. He's 86, correct? Yeah, 86, uh, going to be 87, I believe. And he just feels that he wanted to talk. Um, he didn't really reveal anything about the crime um, other than to say that he had nothing to do with it. He, he still stands by that. Now, the FBI did not respond to our request for an interview after that interview, but they have said before that they don't believe him. They believe he was involved. But where are those paintings? Um, and and he sort of made some jokes that they'd, they'd be hard to hide because they're very large and they don't they can't really be rolled up. Um, and that's why he said they couldn't be here. My house is small. But as we walked through the house, uh, he showed us and we showed this in the piece. They drilled holes into the ceilings and the walls, and they ripped out some things to look behind them to see if maybe they had been put behind the wall and then plastered over to preserve them and to hide them from the public. But they found nothing. They did find some some prescription drugs, and they found uh, some silencers. Yeah, and, and they found some cash in the uh, grandfather clock. I think that was yes. in the segment I as well. I think they found $20,000 in cash. And they found, which his lawyer says, hey, people have cash, you know, yeah. this is. Oh, I got, I got so much cash in my, all my grandfather clocks. <laughs> <laughs> you have so many grandfather clocks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's obviously had some, some criminal elements in his life. He, you know, he admits to that. And um, he was, he was arrested at a very young age. Uh, he was in a car in Hartford. Uh, and I believe they found a sawed off shotgun. Uh, he was extremely young. Uh, he, he talked about his childhood a little bit. We didn't know much about this guy, <clears throat> you know, who was Robert Gentile. And we learned that he owned a pool company at one point, owned a construction company at one point, was a dad, uh, still is his grandfather to this day. And uh, he, he, he just doesn't seem very happy, seems very sad. And I was expecting maybe that he'd reveal something, but uh, he did not. And how did his health seem to you? I, I know it, it seemed like he wasn't breathing uh, great, and I think he noted that. Um, but he seemed like he was getting around okay. Am I? Did I read that incorrectly? He has some health issues. He has uh, he's had heart surgery before, so um, he had open heart surgery, and he's not a healthy guy. I think uh, smoked a little bit when he was younger. I don't think he does anymore. And he's essentially said, you know, I'm waiting to die. 
when you first sat down with him, and this might sound like a, a joke at first, but the thought that went through my head, because knowing the FBI went through his house and, and tore apart walls and dug up the yard, when he referenced that painting that has been on his wall for 65 years, and it's not a very expensive painting, it's sort of a run-of-the-mill type uh, a picture, did it ever occur to you that perhaps there was something valuable behind that, and, and maybe it went through your mind, like, I should check that out? Well, knowing what they what the FBI did in their search, they looked everywhere and they looked in cabinets, they looked in drawers, they drilled holes. I I didn't expect to see anything um, of any value or any value to this investigation there. Uh, When I first got there, I recognized his cars that were the same cars that were in the video that we had from eight years earlier at the house when they were digging it up, His, his Buick Electras, I believe they are, Buick Park Avenues. And then he's got two of them and uh, then when I walked in, of course, I spotted the grandfather clock and that was in one of the pieces that I had watched. And then I saw that painting on the wall and I did ask him about it. And they said they bought it at a flea market years ago and his wife loved it. Uh, but that's really the only thing that kind of jumped out at me was that painting right there. I mean, the house is, is a, I don't want to say typical older person's house. My grandmother's house when she got up in years reminded me of that. There's a lot of like things on the dining room table because you have easy access to your mail and pills and things like that. So if you didn't know anything about him, you would just think it was an ordinary senior citizen's house. And it, this really, it begs the question, like he did say he he was uh, not healthy. He's, he knows he's going to die. He's had a history of, of, of crime. He's been to prison. Why? And I and you said that the the FBI doesn't believe him. That that he knows what happened at some point with those paintings, and they don't believe him when he says that he didn't have anything to do with it. And he didn't even he said that he didn't even know about it until later on, until the police came to his door. If he he's he, if he knows he's going to die, and he knows something about the paintings, why wouldn't he just say, "Yeah, I, I know this," and then and and almost like an "f you" to the cops because why not? Right. You know, let's take your listeners back to how he how they believe he's involved. And that is that they went up to search a home in northern Maine that belonged to a uh, reputed mobster from Boston, Bobby Guarente. So they went to this house looking for the artwork and it was empty. They found nothing. And then they stopped by another house of where his widow lived, Guarente's widow. And she told them that. I guess it was right after uh, the turn of the century that they uh, met, that she met Gentile at a re- at Howard Johnson's restaurant in Portland, Maine. And apparently she says her, her husband handed two of the paintings to Robert Gentile in the parking lot of this restaurant in Portland, Maine. So she tells the FBI this, and now they have this connection to Connecticut. And they believe that the paintings went from Boston to Maine, not all of the paintings, they're just saying, I I believe they're just saying two of them. And then down to Manchester, Connecticut, where they believe that he had them. And then they went on to, I think Philadelphia is where they suspect that they went. And the the FBI had a big news conference and they announced it, uh, that they now had this trail of where they believe the paintings went. Where they are now, we don't know. Uh, Now he says he's never seen them. Was he telling me the truth? hard to say. It's, uh, you know, the viewers were kind of split. Some believe who watched the piece thought that he wasn't telling the truth. Others thought that he was. And that if he, if he did know something, why not? And his attorney, Brian McGuigan, has said that Gentile was in a prison in South Carolina, 
as I recall. So he flew down to South Carolina because he received this call, the attorney did, that his client was going to die, was not doing very well. And so Ryan McGuigan went to there and he said, do you have anything to tell me? Where are the paintings? And with tears in his eyes, Gentile said, I don't know where the, you know, the paintings aren't here. I don't know where they are. So he told his attorney that. So that's all we know about Gentile's knowledge of the paintings. There's no real witness except for Guarenti's wife, who, um, and I asked Gentile about this, who called her bipolar and said she's got issues and said she was lying because she wanted money from the FBI. Who knows? Yeah. Um, and I think I think the whole interview, did, did you feel like it put you in a little bit of a tough situation? Because um, I, obviously, I, I do think some people think he, he was lying and, and you obviously handled yourself very respectfully and professionally. Did you feel like the, it puts you in a weird position when you're interviewing someone like that? Well, I asked him a couple of times and, you know, it's just not my style to beat someone up. Like, are you sure you're not lying to me? It's just not something that I would say. But I asked him a couple of times and he had the opportunity to to fess up. And if, if there was something to confess to um, and, and he, he either has nothing to confess or he chose not to confess. Yeah. And you asked him a question at the end that was. I, I don't know. I was, it it might have been a stressful question just in my head watching it happen. But you you referenced the fact that he said, you know, he acknowledged that he was going to pass away soon. And you asked him what it felt like to know that once he's gone, once he's gone, he's going to be regarded as a as a as a mafia man, like as a gangster. What was like? Was that a pre-planned question? Were you nervous? Well, you know, I did write down some questions, but I have often found that. Uh, interviews grow organically as they are conducted. People will say certain things and that will trigger a question. And if you're a good listener, which I'd like to believe I am, you just have to ask the question. If you go with a set list of questions and they say something that kind of takes you down a different trail and you don't follow up on that, then you're not really paying attention. But so, um, yeah, I, I was planning on, on asking how he plans on being remembered he has several photo albums, several scrapbooks, and in them, he has saved some of the articles in which he's called reputed mobster from Manchester house searched, uh, goes to jail. And so he, he's saved some of these articles and he's got a ton of pictures of his life and of his kids and uh, his travels and things he did. No pictures of Bobby Guarante. I really wanted one of those, but um, <laughs> he could not. And um, but yeah, it, it was uh, he knows that when he dies, the headline is going to say "Reputed Gangster Dies," and he didn't really care. He his response was, "Well, basically, what can I do? You know what? What can I do? That that's not me." He also denies that he was even in the mafia. Yes, um, and that's just um, that was one of the questions I asked him. Now, again, um, some law enforcement officials will disagree with what he had to say. What's his connection to the Philadelphia mob? Because that was what he was. He was part of the Philadelphia mob family, right? Yeah, I'm not really sure like how that all works in terms of the mob world. But apparently there is some connection to the Philadelphia mafia and then the New York mafia into Hartford. And I I think the Hartford mafia was smaller from what I understand. Um, And there were some links. Gorenti was part of the Boston group. Oh, I see. So it was like Philadelphia was like the main family head and then they had branches. I'm not quite certain of, of exactly how it all worked, um, but he denied any involvement. And again, the FBI 
did not want to talk when we reached out to them about this. They've speculated before about some of the connections. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Well, you know, you you mentioned his children and I guess like one thing that he would be very aware of and want to protect would be his family when he's gone. So, you know, in my head, not being in his situation, never been a part of a a mafia syndicate. I'm I'm thinking, well, what does he have to lose? And he's probably thinking, oh, well, I have a lot to lose if I say, yeah, I was part of the mob in Philly. I I was a member. I, I represented the Connecticut branch of that. And yeah, oh, those paintings, I knew where those went. Like, I'm sure he's thinking about some repercussions for his family once he's gone. Is that is that does that sound like something that's reasonable? Yeah, you know, apparently, you know, so his daughter passed away. His son um, owns the house where he lives in. And I believe that they just signed it over to him so that at least the dad would have some place to live that uh, nobody could take away from him now that it's owned by the son. And so he lives there and he says he doesn't have any money and he lives a very simple life. Uh, Some people bring him groceries periodically, some of his friends, his son, I believe. And his son lives nearby and obviously the name Gentile, when you hear about it, people know. And I know some, you know, after I did the story, guys, I, I, I had a lot of, you know, emails and some social media posts from people. Oh, yeah, his son lives near me. Nice guy. That sort of thing. Yeah. And Lance, I can't believe you, you're asking these questions. He, he, he wasn't in the mob. There, there wasn't there isn't even a mob. It's all hypothetical. (laughs) Alleged Um, mob. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Gentile, Gentiles, he does say prove I'm lying at one point, (laughs) which is what all innocent people say. And uh, and then he said, I never saw nothing, Um, which is, of course, a famous double negative. But um, why did he have the the piece of paper that had had like street prices for these paintings? You know? Yeah. So so the two pieces of, of evidence, if you will that was found when that were found when they raided his house, when they went through his house, was a piece of paper that listed the the prices of what these um, what these paintings would sell for on the black market. And we did put it on TV here. Uh, it's a it's a bad photo of this list that was seized by the FBI, but it's really all we have. And as you know, the value has grown, I believe, when they were stolen people said they were worth 250 million dollars now they're worth about three quarters of a million from what i understand um and so i asked him i said why do you have this list and he also had a newspaper that i think was the boston herald that detailed the article of the heist back in uh, march of 1991 and i asked him why he had it he said um uh, oh his friend gave it to him i collect a lot of stuff and Honestly, I, I probably don't have the patience to be an FBI agent because he had a lot of stuff in his house. There was a lot of stuff. There were a lot of piles and things and papers and pictures and just stuff everywhere. And to go through everything takes a lot of patience. And I don't know how they do it, but that's what they do. So they found these two things and they were in the basement. And uh, that was the, it, at, at first glance, you know, probably I think the list was tucked in the newspaper, as I recall reading. And so that's probably how they found it. I, th- I think if they just found the list lying around, they'd be like, oh, what's that? You know, interesting. Yeah. And and his response to that was so indifferent. Like, I don't know, someone just kind of 
you know, gave me this list and they wanted to know something about these paintings. And, and I never, you know, and he says, I never looked at it. You know, one of the things I think, and, and, you know, some people who, who've studied the case said, these paintings really can never be sold. There's no big money to be had from them because someone's going to spill the beans as to where they are. And if, if he made any money off these paintings, I don't know where that money went to. And maybe it wasn't that much money. I, I, you know, speculating here, let's say that he did have them, he sold them. Uh, certainly he didn't get anywhere near that value because that money appears to be nowhere. Right. Because he's certainly not living that type of life. Why would you? And he also said to me, he goes, if I knew where they were, wouldn't I say so, so that I could get this reward? You have to believe him. I, I do feel like in, in totality, I think, like, I, I don't think he knows where the paintings are, you know? Yeah. I'm not sure he knows where the paintings are. Um, and, uh, but there are some who really believe that for a while he did. Yeah. Or at least some of them. I could believe that for a period of time. Yeah. You know, even some of the articles, some of the podcasts, some of the movies and you know, all the stuff, the documentaries I've, I've watched and read about this, um, there's speculation that the, the, that the paintings were split up and went different directions that the likelihood of them all being together is, uh, is not very high. Oh, so that's interesting because I'm on the uh, fence of, I'm on the side of the fence that I, I believe that they are all together because if they were split up, that was just more of an opportunity for one of them to pop up here and one of them to pop up there. The Them being all together in one spot, it makes a little more sense in my head because none of them have ever been seen uh, in a credible manner. Well, the FBI said that the woman um, in Maine said there were only two paintings that were handed over uh, in you know, to hand over all, what were the 13 items taken? Yeah. So, um, you know, just the practical nature of that, to hand those over in a Howard Johnson's parking lot, that just couldn't have happened. So she recognized one of the paintings, I believe was the one, and it's escaping me now, a Vermeer. I, I think she said that was, that might've been one of them or, or, or the landscape or something. I can't remember, but there was one of them that she, she described it to the FBI. But they said there were, you know, I, the, the the accounts of what happened in Maine are that there are only two, you know, two paintings. Right, right. And if they were split up, I do feel like that's kind of a likely story that you'd get uh, afterwards. You know, you'd get rumors, you get one person saying one thing and you'd get some person saying the complete opposite thing. So uh, to me, the that aspect of it could completely check out if they were split up. Yeah, they have been, you know, it's interesting Um there've been reports from all over the world, sightings and tips or whatever about this crime. And here it is the 30th anniversary. And we had a lot of, uh, I'm just waving to, uh, someone who's watching me do my, <laughs> we are in a live television station where stuff's always happening. And, uh, that's what happened. Hey, I'm on a podcast. Uh, so, um, but, um, you know, the FBI didn't really say anything this 30th anniversary and the museum, didn't say anything at all for the 30th anniversary. And here was, there were some significant developments in the investigation. And number one is ours, the fact that Robert Gentile doesn't, who's never spoken to anybody, finally gave an interview. And that there was, uh, you know, you, your podcast is a documentary out that came out April 4th. So there's a lot of buzz about this. And yet they were very, very silent. Interesting. I wonder if that silence um, says something more than them releasing a statement. Maybe there is something that's happening behind the scenes that we don't know about. I'd like to think. Well, so. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that they're, you know, maybe they're closing in on something. I don't really know. They've had so many dead ends, so many leads that have led to nothing 
in 30 years. And look what's happened in 30 years. You know, the woman who um, was the, uh, the curator at the time, um, she gave an interview not too long ago and she doesn't even work there anymore. I mean, this has really um, dominated people's lives. Yeah, for sure. Every time you go to that museum, you see those empty frames. I love rolling these scenarios around, especially these ones where the FBI is involved, where the exchange happens between uh, Garante and Gentile, and it's two paintings. It's reported by a third party who is apparently bipolar, according to Gentile. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to roll these scenarios around in my head. Like, what was the the trade off there? If that's if that happened, what was the trade off? I'm going to give you these two paintings. I have access to these two paintings. He's obviously not doing it for money because we see how he lives now. Was it for protection? Was it because we all know that those paintings were way too hot to do anything with almost instantly, and anyone who's going to s- sell those was putting themselves in direct danger. So. I'm just like, has has any scenario or a, a hypothesis crossed your mind about like, what was that trade-off? Well, you know, I've thought about this. Like, let's say that he had the paintings and, and you know, maybe they were transferred to someone right away when he got to the house before the FBI even knew that they had been there and they disappeared. So, you know, let's say he met and there was some exchange of cash. Let's just say hypothetically speaking, and that the pictures spent very little time in his house and they were gone. The pictures, as he calls them, you know, their paintings. And also, too, you know, the vast majority of people might not be able to tell expensive art from cheap art. And who knows? It's possible that it was, you know, along the way, someone gave that to like an aunt or something. Hey, you know, this is you hang this up and she's never going to you know, this ignorance, maybe she didn't know what it was and she hung it out. Who knows? Maybe it's still there. You know, it's like, you know, years ago I had a friend who was, <laughs> this is, you know, kind of a funny story, but uh, you know, he grew some marijuana in his, the mother's flower garden because he knew that it would be cared for and fertilized and watered and by her. And she didn't really know what it was. So, you know, it, it's possible, possible. These paintings are highly publicized, but there are people who don't know anything about the gardener artist. There are some people who, as soon as the documentary comes on, they change the channel. They're not interested in it or they don't find the story interesting. So maybe they've seen the painting and and uh, just didn't even recognize it. You know, uh, a couple of them that were stolen are pretty large. So that's not something that's another thing, too. Like it takes some doing to to sell these and to transport something so huge. There was that Boston Herald reporter who said that he saw one of them, remember? Yeah, Tom Mashberg. He described it, but then later, I think the FBI kind of dismissed it because they don't believe it was the right size or it was rolled up, right? Yeah, yeah. He described tubes where you roll up paintings and you put them in the tubes, and that's what he was shown. Um, and then they un- unrolled Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the FBI was and other art experts were like, yeah, you're not going to roll that up in the first place. Not yeah, the way he described it. Yeah. yeah, that it couldn't be rolled. I mean, it could be probably, but you destroy it. He would have you said would like, it. Yeah. or you might have paint chips that yeah, you could uh, use as a proof of life and send to the gardener, which is, yeah, and you know, sadly too, you know, we know things get, to, you know, things get destroyed um, through life. It's possible that someone who was in custody of any one of these things could have accidentally destroyed it or, you know, uh, spilled something on it or rolled it or done whatever. We just don't know. I mean, they were damaged anyway, by the way, they were cut out of the frames. So we just don't know. And um, who knows if, um, you know, the, the, I suppose it's possible that if someone 
had the paintings and they were freaking out about having them that they just destroyed them. Ugh. You just never know. You just don't know what you just if, if they knew the FBI was coming to the house or something like that. You just don't know. There's so many different possibilities. Yeah. Or that it's in some really wealthy person's mansion um, overseas somewhere and he only goes and looks at it. Right. I, I think that's my worst uh, case scenario is that the second they found out how valuable these were, they went in and they, they didn't understand what they were taking. Right. And then they, they find out like how much value was being placed on them. And then the value is like rapidly increasing over the years. My, yes. my worst scenario is that they're just like throw it in the river and just get rid of it. It's, it's too much. Get rid of it. Yeah. You know, and, and so many of the people involved, well, said to be involved in this crime are dead. So, you know, it's possible that the answers to some of these questions have are just gone forever. You know, we just don't know. But you're right. It was one of those things that um, art lovers knew that museum. But by all accounts, it was fairly easy to steal from. You know, I believe there's some reports that they cased the joint before they'd walked through it. They got in fairly easily. I, I think one of my favorite theories is that either the artwork is still in the building because we were talking about how large the, these pieces were to move or it's yeah. in storage in another museum like the the MFA or something. Somehow it was put into storage because uh, I just like that. I just like that ending. I like the ending where someone's going through, you know, some art historian or, or the person in charge of keeping the art um, in storage is going through and they're like, what's this? You know, Lance, I'm a big fan of happy endings, too. So I, I would love to see this art returned. And, I, and I'd love to believe that it's in someone's place right now. And who knows? It's possible at the time. You're right. Um, you know, maybe it was stored by someone who didn't know what it was. And that person might have died. And someday when, you know, it's interesting, like uh, you know, people leave old cars in their garage, they cover them up and then the, the aunt dies and they forget about it. They go in the barn 20 years later. Oh, look at this old Hudson that was uh, stored by Nana, you know, there's so many different possibilities, but everyone is optimistic that the paintings are still out there somewhere. I'd like that to be the case. And, and I, I have to, I have to commend you on that interview with uh, Gentile. It was, uh, it was really well done. It was, it was both entertaining and um, surprisingly emotional when he was speaking about certain things. And I'm curious what you, you took away with it or you, what you took from it, like your gut feeling. Did, did you believe him? Well, you know, when I first met him, he reminded me, uh, my mom's Italian, and I had a couple of old Italian uncles who have since passed away. But my uncle Pasquale, who went by Uncle Patsy, looked a lot like him in a way and sat in the chair the same way. And it's, I was a kid when he died, but but he probably died around the same age. And he so he kind of reminded me of him. And he's, he's kind of avuncular in the same way. He was very friendly to me when I walked in. Uh, we sat, we chatted uh, about this, that, and the other thing and about Hartford. And, um, you know, we got teary eyed when he talked about his wife and um, he, he, he sounded believable because if you, if you analyze it, why would he lie? Why would he lie at this stage of his life? Why wouldn't he just tell the truth and say, Hey, listen, yep. Um, I passed him over or whatever, but I don't think he wants to go to prison. Number one, again. So if he admits to something, certainly that would do it. Um, or he just didn't really have anything to do with it. And, and he's right about, you know, the woman making the story up. And he's like, if I had them, where's the money for, for having these things, you know, that's his argument. So I, I, uh, you know, I tend to believe the people I interview until I'm proven otherwise. Excellent.
Thank you so much, Mr. House, for your time. This has been a, uh, a lot of fun talking about Mr. Gentile with you and the gardener art. We really appreciate your time. Tim, Lance, thank you for having me on. And let's hope that uh, let's hope they find these paintings. Let's hope that your podcast helps trigger someone's mind as they go through their garage. And like, hey, look, oh, there's that. What is that? Is that a Rembrandt? Who knows? It's out there somewhere. Uh, they are. And let's hope that we find them.